0: Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. So I'm here today with Manny Burke. Manny Burke is uh, the proprietor of Rare Wine Company, uh, the importer and also retailer uh, based in California. Hi, Manny. Nice to see you. Hi, Levy. Good to be here. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved with wine. You were kind of more involved in
1: the advertising angle when working for a small wine shop originally, is that Um, uh, Kind of. Um, I was... A- uh, I was actually working for the the mayor of Boston oh, in okay. the late '70s, and was that Mayor White? That was Mayor White. Yep. Awesome. Yep,
0: yep. And was it you with the busing? And uh, no, it was there's... a little
1: bit after busing, but it was it was definitely still a, a pretty stormy time in Boston. And uh, my job was was redeveloping. Um, uh, neighborhood business areas in the city. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. And it was, you know, it was very political and I had, I'd worked in Chicago before you. you would think, oh, okay. You would yeah. think that, you know, I would have figured out. <laughs> right. Figured it out. Frying pan, out. fire kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I was a little slow. And uh, so I spent a total of 10 years doing that and decided that it was way too political for me. I was more, I was really an idealist and I wanted to, you know, save cities. And, and that's why and you got people. involved. Because that you, was it. Yeah. 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 And, uh, uh, just decided that it that it wasn't my thing and so um about 1980 I decided that I wanted a, a career change and thought about the things that I could do that I really enjoyed and and uh, wine popped up to the to the surface it took me a couple of years to figure out well what what was I going to do in wine I actually spent most of that time trying to to either buy a wine shop or open a wine shop and uh Came really close a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> I actually had a, uh, 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 I made an offer for a little wine shop in Brookline, Mass. In it was probably about 1981. And uh, called up the owner and said, you know, you know, I'll buy it. I'll be over in 20 minutes, you know, with with the money. I drive up to the store and there was uh, a guy that I knew who was the local rep for uh, Louis Latour Burgundy's. Standing in front of the shop with a big smile on his face because he had bought it. Wow. He bought it for his girlfriend. And uh, how does that happen? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I wasn't too happy about it. So it was, you know, sort of back to the drawing board at that point.
0: Boy, that's like a DI order or something. It really It's like, is. get it in yeah. now. Yeah, the clothes some, out. Definitely you know.
1: some insider information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you I mean, the amazing thing was, it really was about 20 minutes uh, between I made the phone call and the guy's, If only you'd found a parking, parking place a little closer I guess to the so, shop. Or if or, I hadn't lived indoors, Dorchester, and stuff. right, right, yeah. You know, wow, you lived in Dorchester in the eighties. Oh yeah. yeah you
0: yeah. know, one time I went to Dorchester and well, I had got out. It <laughs> was a, a, a gang of small youths like following me and, yeah, and yelling yeah. at me.
1: It was like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my neighbor. Um, I was in a, in a neighborhood that was it was actually the sort of the political neighborhood of of uh, of Dorchester, and because there were there were residency laws at that time, if you worked for the city, you had to live in the city. Oh, okay. And so there was this, this wonderful neighborhood called Ashmont Hill, and basically everybody there was either had a job. A, a job with the city or a job with the state. Oh, okay. And uh, it was a really neat neighborhood. And then on the fringes of it, you know, were people who were not political and, you know, who just were – that their families have been in Dorchester for, for generations. And uh, it was fun. It was an interesting, interesting <laughs> it was, time. It was, it was, I can only imagine.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because so, you still see those fault lines in, in Massachusetts, I think. Yeah,
1: oh, yeah. You know, yeah.
0: along ethnic lines. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so the the Brookline deal fell through. Um I actually put a deposit down on a piece of real estate on the waterfront in Portland, Maine, uh, to do a wine shop, to do you know a new wine shop there. Um, But unfortunately, the building—it was an old building on the waterfront that was owned by the, the state of Maine. And you know, sort of, you know, talk about being back in the in the fire, you um, <clears throat> know, waiting for the state of Maine to you know to actually move on the on the on the whole project sure. because it was I just had one space; it was all this other space that had to be had to be dealt with. Did that and,
0: finally come through like uh, last week? Uh, yeah, the maybe. paperwork. I, I, <laughs> yeah, they haven't let me know about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh,
1: <laughs> anyways, I got tired of waiting. I got tired of working for the city. And actually, the 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 uh, the the turning point was um was in November of just November of of eighty two, um doing standing at the polls uh when it was uh, Dukakis was, was running for you know for president. Sure, that's right. And uh standing there, you know, handing out leaflets and uh I just decided, you know, that morning that, you know, I, I was done. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, you know, I, I couldn't, you know, it was, it was taking too long. I had to do something. So the next morning I walked in and uh, gave my notice and stayed for, I guess, another month to, to wrap things up. And, um, in the meantime, had to, had to do something, had to find something. And so there was a, it was a very good, um, wine shop in Harvard Square called, uh, Cava Atlantique, okay. which had, um, Recently, uh, expanded and they, they had a, a shop in West, in Chestnut Hill Mall and one in, uh, on, a very, very posh one in uh, downtown Boston on, on Boylston Street. Oh. So I got a job for six bucks an hour as a quote unquote wine consultant. And I, 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 at that point, even though I was just, I was an amateur, I was a real amateur. I really loved wine. I was pretty knowledgeable. So I was able to, to do that, you know, very easily. The problem is that, that a month after I, I went to work for them. They declared bankruptcy. Oh, so uh, I was you know back in the back ba- in the fire. Y- yeah, at least back on the street. Um, I went to Newport, Rhode Island, and got a a job working for uh, the the best local wine shop there. It was a couple of, of brothers who when i was looking around new england for a, a place to have a, a wine shop uh, and i went to new, to uh, newport and i thought that would be a very promising market i went into the into the shop and uh i was so impressed by these guys uh that i just decided i wasn't you know it just wasn't a big enough market for the both of us so i went away but you oh, know wow. I, I remembered them and so, you know, when I was available again, I called them up and said, you know, would you just have me come to work for you? They said, Absolutely. You know, and the next day I was I was down there working. Uh and it was a great thing for me because it was they were very they were very passionate and good businessmen, but they didn't have a, a huge amount of wine knowledge. And so, um, you know, and I was kind of, already kind of a wine geek. And so they basically turned over all of their advertising, their tastings uh, they you know had me train the local you know the the, the wait staff and restaurants in New, Newport it's really a fun job and that it was actually the summer of the last uh, uh, Americas Cup the one, the first one that we lost got it uh in, in uh, that was in uh in 83 83 um uh, so i was there for that summer I, I think i saw that on television yeah as a kid yeah um it was a big deal because we'd never lost it you mm-hmm. know that was the first time i guess i was a i was a jinx well it uh, yeah. sounds like you did such great work for dukakis exactly. i can't imagine how that could i did tell him not to wear the, not to wear the helmet and the, right and yeah yeah stuff. i was trying to make the tank joke but yeah, it just yeah, wasn't coming yeah yeah it was tanking. um it was I just stayed there for a few months and then i uh I decided I was really good at writing about wine because I'd done a lot of writing in government and uh so i I decided to start a, a business doing basically doing wine newsletters and and, ads oh, okay. and stuff and i s- went around the country and basically you know uh signed up a whole bunch of wine shops uh, uh, chicago uh, guy in boston dallas um New Jersey, there was a chain in New Jersey, a whole bunch in, in New York and started a little company called Wine Letters. Um, uh, where I basically it was a little wine advertising agency and, uh, did lots of New York Times ads, wine spectator ads. Uh, I mean, you know, crossroads, uh, the little wine shop on, on sure on 14th street. Um, I did all their ads for years and it was a great way to learn the business because, you know, I was able to see, you know, how wine sells. Right.
0: Um, kind of before Wine Searcher, you were kind of the guy that put like numbers on pages and talked a little bit about the wines and yeah, kind of like yeah. kind of proto email blast.
1: It really was you know. because prior to at that point, you know, wine was all brick and mortar. It was all wine shops. You yeah, know, there were no mail order. There were very few mail order businesses, wine businesses. I mean, I guess the Chicago Wine Company was about as close to one as you would find. Um but basically, you know, wine was was sold in a store. You went, you know, you either called them up on the phone or you went down there, and so um, and there was a fair amount of, of print advertising that was done, especially in in New York. And uh, so, but I, I got I got to learn how I mean what what can you reasonably expect to sell you know from a, from an ad for example or a newsletter and I see. you know and, and I was able to you know to test my pros and see you know what, what what sorts of words what sorts of ideas um, compel people, and so it was a, it was a fantastic education. I did it for a few years. Um, <clears throat> to, Actually, the year the next year, um, a friend of mine and I got a a, a book contract with Simon and Schuster oh. to do a book on old wine, which was was always my always was and still is my my you know. My greatest, greatest passion. That's your, that's your thing. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it really is my thing. Um, as I've been lucky to find out (laughs) several times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They're, uh, you know, it's, it's a different, old wine is a different experience from young wine. And, you know, and, and I find that as I'm looking at young wine, I'm looking for characteristics that I get out of old wine. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. sort of, that's the way my, my brain works. Uh, but we got this contract and, um, to write this book and I was, Spending a lot of time traveling in Europe, uh, doing amazing tastings. I mean, you talk about how things have changed, and you know the experiences you could have then that you couldn't have now. Um, on one particular trip, um, I just spent a week in Champagne and had these visits at visits at Krug, Clicquot, uh, Pomeri, uh who actually used to in the '50s and '40s made a, made an amazing champagne. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Roger, Bollinger. And uh, at each place, they basically rolled out the carpet and put together these uh, unbelievable vertical tastings. I mean, for example, at Krug, uh, they opened up, and this is all Krug collection, so yeah. you could imagine, you know, what the stuff would be worth. Now. now then right. it didn't have, have have nearly as much value. 1928, 1949, wow. 1959, 1969. Um this is for, you know, you know, a young guy who's, you know, got a book contract, but no nobody's ever heard of. Sure. Uh, Paul Roger, it was nineteen fourteen, uh, was the oldest. And that was a really special wine because um during the 1914 harvest, the Germans were shelling um, around and I didn't the, realize. Yeah, that. and uh, a lot of a lot of the the people, a lot of the harvesters were were killed during the harvest. And the, it was always said that the blood of France runs in the 1914 vintage. And so, being able to taste um, you know an absolutely amazing bottle of 1914 Paul Roget there. Um it was just such an emotional experience I mean to this day it 's the greatest wine experience i 've ever had um, <clears throat> and we also had 1921 and nineteen twenty eight and that was how it that was how it went and you know it it did similar things in barolo and in burgundy and in bordeaux it was just it was wonderful um, part of my interest in wine is also cultural sure. you know, historical i mean i 'm interested in um wine is not just a beverage it's a it's really a, a manifestation of of the people the times the geology the you know the weather all the things that 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 conspire to make a wine what it is um and uh so i i was also doing a lot of of, of sort of cultural research i was i spent a lot of time in belgium learning about the this amazing um uh culture of of wine connoisseurship, which really predated the rest of the world by a few decades, um, and I would say, you know, say up to the 1950s, really only the British knew as much about fine wine as the Belgians did.
0: Is that because they're kind of an intersection to several different wine-producing countries?
1: You know. Um, I think it's it's probably that. I mean, there's so close, so close to France, and so close to, to Germany. Also, I mean, it's you know, it's it's it, the, the, they've been very serious about cuisine for a, for a long for a time. Long time. Um, something else which is really, I think, is, is part of it. Um, and, and, and certainly, the, you know, having access to the, the wine regions is really important. But another thing that's really that's, that's, that's critical is that they had a direct pipeline to Pomerol in San emilion which the rest of the world didn't have. I see. And so, the reason why you hear about, about uh, you know, 47, 49 Petrus uh, and 47 Chevalbon that are bottled in Belgium you like Vanderbilt, right. for example yeah. um, is that they that mo- that a very large part of the production of Pomerol, uh, and to a somewhat lesser extent, saint Leone was going straight to Belgium in barrel and being bottled there. I see. And so they they had, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, direct access, just the same way that the British had their pipeline to the Medoc. Um, sure. The Belgians had a you know had a direct pipeline to uh, uh, to, to 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 the right bank, and, um, and they have this you know this wonderful history of 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 not only uh, Belgian bottled. Bordeaux, but also Burgundy, and even when I was there in the late '80s doing my research, they were still buying bo- Burgundy in barrel and having it bottled there. Uh, it was really very extraordinary. But part of my research was also um, looking at, at at consumption and, and consumerism, um, and I spent a fair amount of time in London, which is another. It was a another advanced wine culture. Sure, uh, especially and, for <clears throat> old wine. For uh, Absolutely. You know, still
0: today, I think, even. You know, yeah. Although,
1: I think less so, than, less so than then. I mean, I think that the, the the new generation of British wine lovers uh, has kind of lost that.
0: Wants more of a discount than I, they want, like something old.
1: Yeah, well, I think they want discounts. I think they, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation in wine. Sure. Um, I think their tastes have, have changed a lot. I, I, I think the British are very much like the rest of the world at this point and whereas 30 years ago it was very much a different a different wine scene um but anyways during my during my research there i went into a wine shop um and uh it was owned by a couple of MWS, and I looked on. The, I was just browsing around, and I, I noticed that they had a bunch of Madeiras on the shelf that were they, the prices just seemed really, you know, just stupidly cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, wines from the 19th century that were selling for the, the equivalent of, uh, of 40 or 50 dollars a bottle. Wow. And so I asked, I asked them, you know, why are these so cheap? Yeah. And and the owner said that that um, uh, that a couple of the big uh, Madeira shippers, Blandies uh, and Cosarts, that that their longtime UK agent had been bought by by ba- Bass uh, Ale, the the, okay. b- the big brewing uh, conglomerate, and uh, because the Madeira market was dead, uh, and they had all these old stocks, they were basically unloading them uh, at really cheap prices. So even though I had no, you know I was I hadn't. Really plan to become a wine merchant or a wine importer. It was just one of those, it was one of those opportunities you have in life where you basically pass or play. You have to make a decision. Is this something I got to do? Because an opportunity like this is never going to. Happen again, sure. Or do I just you know forget about it and move on? I decided I was gonna gonna take a close look. So I, the next morning, I contacted this uh, this agent, which was Hedges and Butler, which is, you know, you're talking about history. It was a a, a, a London wine merchant that had had been started in the 1600s. Wow. And uh, said, "I hear that you're unloading a bunch of Madeira. Do you have a price list?" And the guy, the guy faxed over. At that point, there was no, there was no email. There was, you know, no internet. That's right. Um, you know, it was basically fax and an a, uh, obscure technology called Telex. Right. Uh, anyways, but he, he was. I still have the fax that he sent on the uh, that really stinky paper mm-hmm. that used to come out of fax machines. Yeah and uh with the price list and um i i ended up i didn't have any money first of all but fortunately i had a very good friend who uh still still is a very very good friend who was also a Madeira lover uh who who did have the money and he he was willing to uh, to bankroll me and uh ended up buying i made two purchases i know the first purchase was 400 cases and the second was another two or three hundred cases and um of, you know, today, um, irreplaceable, irreplaceable Madeira, um, a lot of money. Uh, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it. Yeah. I just knew that I had to buy it. And um, so I did the, the most logical thing, which was I got a, a an import, a license to import wine into the U.S., and uh set up a company and again i didn't know how i was going to market and distribute it and uh, but I, I figured it out over the next couple of years this was 1980 88, 89 uh, i got my license in 89 um, first couple of years i actually s- uh, sold through a friend's uh, uh, retail license in chicago and then uh, in 92 i realized that um <clears throat> that my passion for the kinds of wines that i loved and my love of communicating directly to consumers was what i what really drives me and so i decided i wanted to have my own retail business wanted to have my own newsletters and and things like that and I wanted to specialize in, you know, the kinds of wines that I love. Um, and so that was 92 and, uh, I had to figure out where could I do that? And the, then as now, the, you know, the wine laws in the U.S. are kind of a minefield. Sure. Um, there are very few places where you can. Sort of follow your heart and your passion. I mean, you're so regulated and so restricted in what you could do. The only there was only one state where you could do it, and that was California, where
0: you can both import and retail,
1: and also be a wholesaler. And you wholesaler. can do you can do whatever you want. And, and very and a really important part of that is that not only can you import, but you can import any wine. Most states have uh, something called primary source laws, which which basically say that 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 uh, such and such company has been designated the official importer sure. by the producer. Like New York has like or New- Massachusetts has. Yeah. Massachusetts definitely does. Um, I think it's around 30 States that have it. Um, and, uh,
0: you can't get around it. Like if somebody else has certain XYZ, it, 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 they, Chateau, own, they own the brand. They, They're, the they only bring one. It in.
1: They're the only ones who can, who can, uh, bring it into the, into the state. And so, um, uh, you know, it, it basically, I mean, I, I, just, I discovered it the hard way in Illinois, where I remember buying some, you know, thirty-year-old uh, Dom Pérignon and some old uh, Châteauryas, and got reported to the got it. to the state of Illinois.
0: So even though you're selling vintages that, that the other not, guy would never sell ever, yes, you, he's still giving you a hard time because he, he feels like he's associated with the brand and you're not
1: right. And it's and legally he can do that. I right. mean, you know, it's not it's i don't i don't criticize the company for you know for taking advantage of the right what sure. i criticize is the law because it's you know it's anti-consumer um it you know as you, as you as you noticed i mean it it doesn't didn't matter whether they had that particular vintage right. um it's any vintage of of these particular wines
0: and the um, long story short of that is that the people in chicago are not drinking those vintages essentially because they're not they're not Drinking the old stuff Yeah, nobody and, else is. And, making and you
1: it actually look at Illinois and and you know, and it's a market which is is dominated by one big retail chain. I see. Um uh there's there are not a lot of small independent uh wine shops. Um, you know, it doesn't have the thriving market that New York and, New York and California has. has. I mean we had a situation in in California, I'd say about eight years ago. Where a primary source law, uh, was proposed. It was, it was submitted into the legislature. Um, it was the second time it had happened. It happened once before, about 20, 25 years earlier. And, um, you know, we basically had to mobilize all the, you know, both consumers and retailers and, and, you know, and small importers to stop it. And we were able, we we're, were able to stop it. Otherwise, you know, you'd see the, the California market, um, you know, becoming a lot less interesting. Uh, as far as New York, I, it's my understanding. I mean, it, there may be some sort of a prohibition on the books, but basically, there's a workaround which mm-hmm. which allows you know a f- relatively open market. I see. in New York. Um, you know, I don't don't do business here, so I don't don't really know. But um, you know, that's my that's my impression. That's, that's the impression. Yeah. So
0: it seems to me like you started to really get behind uh, in a real um, putting your wallet uh, where your love was um, old wine and certain old wines that weren't so popular right at the moment that they were becoming less and less popular because of the rise of um, consumer publications that were advocating younger wines, Mm -hmm. uh, more (laughs) fruit-forward wines, less tannic wines, less of the the aged wines that you Mm -hmm. may have liked. And that you also sort of did it in California, which was – a place uh, where that was really happening a lot Mm -hmm. during the rise of California Cabernet in in a big way. Um, Do you find yourself kind of naturally drawn towards fighting the good fight in a sense, or does that just not even come up? I mean, it seems like even though that was the one place that the laws allowed you to do it, it was the time and the place where what you were doing might've been the least popular. Maybe that forced you to do it on your own rather than just expecting people to show up and ask you for it. Yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, I've always believed in niche markets. I think that Mm -hmm. no matter what else is happening in the world, there's always going to be a place for somebody who, um, to champion, uh, something that, has you know real intrinsic value, sure. in quality. I mean, and those and people are out there.
0: Have you seen it, that grow? Oh, ab, with the rise of the internet and
1: yeah, I mean it, the the internet helps. Although I have to say that in all the years that where we where our main mode of communication was the newsletter, it was in a in a way that may surprise you. It may have been, may have been easier. Is that true? Yeah, there's so much noise now, mm-hmm. I and mean, there's so much. There's so much competing information, it's it's a little bit more difficult to get people's attention. I think people are reading less than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I find your newsletters very thorough. Well, thank you. Like, and, you know, there's certain information about, say, a Barolo producer that's actually really hard to find just in general. Because yeah. there's not so many books on a topic. I mean, there's a couple, but not that go into the level of depth often that your newsletters do
1: on yeah. the producers that you carry? Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I mean, we, you know, we feel, feel it's part of, of our job to, to you know, to educate. I mean, it's to, it's to educate and, and to create passion and interest and get people to try certain kinds of wines. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually becoming harder, harder to do. Um, and you know, I mean, the, first of all, the wine business, even though we're in California, you know, the wine business, the fine wine business, is a is a national, national. If, if not a global market. And you can ship at, to somewhere at this point. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, customer, you know, serious collectors are buying, and you know, not only buying in the U.S., many of them are buying buying in Europe, mm-hmm. um, and it's rare to find a collector who is satisfied just dealing with one merchant. So there's, you know, there's a a, a lot of competition. So th- there is a. There's a large pool of potential customers. The, you know, the the challenge is is, re, is is reaching them. So the internet is good in terms of, of um, you know, it, it, there there are there are other ways of getting getting your message out. The problem is reaching people. And um, you know, 20 years ago, it was just easier. I mean, you know, there weren't that many voices out there uh, when I when I got started.
0: Well, be that as it may, it seems like. Things that you have um, really gotten behind, like Madeira, Mm -hmm. you've... Uh, maybe because of you, you know, there's been a market that's developed around them that maybe wasn't there at least not in America, at least not since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. You know, where I mean, obviously, Madeira and United States have a, a strong relationship mm-hmm. in colonial days, but uh, wasn't so popular mid 20th century. And I feel like, um, it's something that a lot of restaurants now offer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not you're not assured to see it, but it's very much more common than it was uh, when I first started my career, and I feel like that maybe. Uh, partly in thanks to you. And I've also seen traditional Barolo um become much more popular uh, than it was, uh, you know, maybe in the early 90s or mid 90s. And I, I think that you might have something to do with that as well. So it seems like some some markets have changed a little bit, maybe because of your influence or what you're offering or because you were willing to explain it.
1: Um I hope we you know I hope we contributed to it. I mean I the, the I, I can tell you the the areas that the the kinds of wines that have always meant a lot to me personally and into our company. Uh you mentioned Madeira and traditional Barolo. Um basically tradi- traditionally made wine of, of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um and you know it's wines that really do have a sense of of time and place. Um there's no you know they haven't suffered from what I think a lot of modern winemaking does, which is to, to rub out their, their character to make them a little bit more like other wines. I like wines that, you know, you know, whether they're flawed or not, whether they, you know, that they're, there are things that, you know, you might, may consider imperfections. At least they have character and they have a certain nobility as a, as a result. And so, you know, not just traditional Barolo, um, uh, you know, traditional California Cabernet is something that, sure. you know, that, that we, that we work on. Um, Coat Row is a, you know, is a good example of mm-hmm. the kind of place that I, I feel like we need, that my company needs to, to help and support because, uh, i think it's one of the great vineyard areas of of the world um and it 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 you know it's it doesn't have the uh you know uh, yeah, i think it's i think it's at the same level as you know jevery chambertin mm-hmm. and um and i think you know many of the wines are absolutely the you know the same level as the best of those wines um but it's not appreciated i mean Hermitage gets more you know gets more attention um you know, within Kot Roti, you know, Gigal uh, casts a very, very big shadow. And so a lot of the other, you know, smaller producers like like Rostain, Jamais, um, you know, get get lost. Um, you know, you have you have these mythic producers like like Jantas sure. who um you know, is there's starting to become a cult following for it. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> the wines don't exist anymore. Sure. They've gotten incredibly expensive. You know, again, so once again, you have the same problem you have with Gigal, which is, so Gentas now is casting a big shadow. And so, you know, so that there's a, a natural tendency. Oh, I want to have Gentas because that's the best. Yeah. But when you put them on the same table with old wines from say Jasmine, for example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, you know, you find out that, you know, it's similar philosophy, you know, um- but different character and pretty much the same style. I mean, not the same style, same quality, mm-hmm. same same level of, 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 of interest. Um, and so, you know, the message is a complicated message. And, uh, you know, there's all these market forces that you're, you know, you're working at. You know, the other problem you have is, you know, Old Champagne. Now, you know, it was the time at the beginning of my, my company, and you could tell that I, I love Old Champagne. And, you know, early on, we were big advocates of it before it became uh, popular popular uh that's all you know it's not possible anymore for us really to 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 be players because the prices have gotten so high is that uh, true oh it's just it's just it's painful um so we uh you know i i I get a little bit of it when I can, um, you know, I, I love to drink it at home, but it, it's very hard to, to get, you know, but we've, uh, I've sort of, I've replaced that whole that hole in my heart with uh, the privilege of representing uh, Anselm Salas. Sol- sure. Um, Who a lot of people regard as father figure to the
0: young, you know, the younger, more adventurous generation really looks to as inspirational.
1: Yeah. And, and to my palate, um, uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't see anybody else making wine of that quality of mm-hmm. that. And again, it's a matter of taste. It's mm-hmm. not, I shouldn't use the word quality. You know, there's just, there's a character to his wines. There's a, <clears throat> um, this brilliant transparency and intense minerality that I just find uh, over, you know, almost overwhelming.
0: Say I wanted to really enjoy a Solos wine. Do you have any tips for me on how I should serve it?
1: Um great question. Um definitely not too cold, you know, sort of uh cellar temperature or a couple of degrees cooler than that. Mm-hmm. Um I actually de- I decant it. Mm-hmm. Uh I also don't serve it in flutes. I use uh, white wine glasses cuz I like a little bit bigger bowl. Um I I find that a champagne flute for good champagne tends to I don't know, it tends to restrict it a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um I I like the I like roundness in wines. Yeah. Um I mean, the sensuality of it. And, um, so I like wines, you know, I don't want, I don't want too many bubbles or too, 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 too you know, too sharp, uh, uh bubbles. I like some, uh, uh, I like a foaming mousse and champagne, which I think, uh, a large, a little bit larger bowl gives you. Um, You know, obviously, with an older champagne, you have to be more careful because there's there are fewer bubbles in it, and you want to have it a little bit colder to to keep the bubbles inside. Uh, But for youngish solace or other great champagnes, um, as I said, I like a white wine glass, and I like them. I you know if if I think that the wines respond well to air, which I do do believe with solace, I like to I often decant them.
0: Something like initial. Would you decant that and serve that right away, or would you decant that and give it some time? And would it be the same for something like substance? Sometimes I wonder, you know, how the wines would show the very best. Um. Um, it
1: was, it's funny you should ask Levy because I, I'm, I'm very excited because um, a couple of months ago I bought a pretty, you know, well pretty substantial amount of of. Initial that was disgorged, uh, 11 or 12 years ago. Okay. Oh, wow. I'm really excited about it. Um, in fact, the day that I bought it, I went down to my cellar and I pulled out a bottle of, of initial, um, that had been disgorged, I think in 2002. So the same period as, as these bottles and, uh, had, had it last night and it was really one of the, Best wine experiences I've had in years. It was whatever I was
0: amazing. doing last night clearly didn't measure up to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to that even because that yeah. sounds
1: great. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> no, I mean you know it, it goes back to there's a certain you can't replace maturity in wine. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, breathing. Uh, there's there, there's a purpose for letting wines breathe, and usually, in my opinion, it's not so much to make a. a, a a young wine tastes like an old wine. Um, I usually find that breathing is more helpful for older wines to let them. Open up after being in bottle for a long for a long time.
0: Is that something you find with Barolo as well,
1: older Barolo? Absolutely. Yeah. Because
0: I, I think a lot of people uh, get hesitant. Sometimes I know I've had some hesitations, but um, I've, I've seen you decant uh, older Barolo to good effect. Is that something you're a believer in?
1: Uh, I'm a total believer in it. And I, I think that that far too many bottles of of <coughs> old Barolo get dr- drunk way too soon after being uh, uncorked or, or decanted. Um, typically Typically, if wines from the 60s and 50s, I give at least a couple of hours in a decanter. I mean, if you think the wine is in is in good shape, good shape, then uh, yeah, a couple, two or three hours. Um, I've seen you know 50, 60 year old Barolos m- improve over over the space of of five hours even. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's that's interesting, the other thing to to watch for is when you first open an old Barolo and decant it. Um, you sometimes will see that the color is kind of brown uh-huh. and the nose is unpleasant, um, you know, sort of oxidized. And you just, you know, you instinctively say, give up. Yeah. This yeah, wine's like, dead. Oh. This wine's dead. And, you know, and I do the same thing. Yeah. However, I've got the experience to know don't give up. Well,
0: that's a really valuable thing to You've say to someone who's opening up a thousand dollar bottle and might well
1: at that point think
0: you, yeah. not, that maybe yeah. this isn't very good yeah. and maybe what you're saying is just give it a little time because it could really come yeah. around and it, ha- it
1: happens a lot um, I mean not only do, not only does the nose uh, clear up um, and, and these oxi- oxidative notes get replaced with you know with wonderful smells of mature barolo but the color also is restored. Uh, by air, and it goes from being kind of brownish to being, you know, to being a, a, a healthy red. You see it a lot. I mean, it doesn't happen with every bottle. Some bottles are dead. I mean, they're just they're not coming back. But there are a surprisingly large number of, of old Barolos wh- wh- where you'll see that. Um, I, I'm. I have a, a theory about air with wine, and um, as I said, I, I think breathing is. Is more important for for older wines than for younger wines, um, but the wines that really respond to it the 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 best seem to be wines that were that were made in an old-fashioned way where they were subjected to a fair amount of oxygen during their winemaking. I see during their during their rape. so
0: not yeah. reductive, not like in a stainless steel exactly. container, but maybe in cement or an old wood. Yeah. Uh, where there was maybe an open top, or it wasn't topped up immediately,
1: and they spent a lot you know—I may have also spent a long time in barrel. I mean, Barolo is a perfect example. I mean, some of those wines spent six or eight years. I mean, Monfortino, sure. Giacomo Caterno Monfortino still spends uh, up to eight years in in barrel, uh, and so I find that that wines that have been subjected to a lot of oxygen during their that they're making and and that the élevage, the, the you know, their their early years, once they go into bottle, once they leave. Oxidation and go into a, as you said, a reductive environment, a bottle where there isn't a lot of oxygen to go, go, mm-hmm. go around that, you know, that once it comes out of the bottle, it needs to readjust to air and needs to absorb air, which is actually, you know, is, is life giving, uh, for them at that point. And, um, you know, Madeira is the ultimate example of that. Um, you know, if you've, if, if you have a Madeira that has spent you know uh 60 years in bottle mm-hmm. um, I would I would uh, suggest decanting it uh, leaving it in a decanter for several days <clears throat> maybe even up to a week sure um, you can kind of tell I mean if it, if it smells good when you've decanted it 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 it's not it may not be so necessary maybe a few hours will be okay or a couple days
0: I really have found that nothing fills the room with aroma like old Madeira yeah no, like, it's a good smell how, how amazingly. Can and just waft over everything. It's, it's incredible in yeah. terms of aromas. I don't know of any more powerful aromas in, in any of wine.
1: Yeah, no, it's 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 an amazing wine. And uh, but if it's been in bottle for a long time, it can take a few days. Um, sometimes it, it, I, I've had plenty of madeiras that were in bottle for over over a hundred years, um, sure. know, even one hundred and fifty years, where I left it left the wine in a decanter for a couple of weeks. Um, in fact, I've even. One of the the traditional ways of restoring a very very old Madeira that's been in bottle is to decant it into either a, a decanter or into a large bottle called a demijohn mm-hmm. and leave it there for a few months mm-hmm. and uh, you'll find wines that have that that initially seem to be just completely shot um totally restored. I mean we had a a, a big Tarantej tasting as a, a rare variety mm-hmm. yeah. um in New York uh, a couple months ago yeah. and uh one of the wines um I had opened the bottle a year earlier it was clearly not in great shape because I knew the wine well. Um, it had been, but but the wine had been in bottle for a long time, um, and it was put into a, a demijohn, with these big bottles. And it was left there for six months, and then it was rebottled for this tasting, and it was absolutely spectacular.
0: Wow! So, I mean, clearly, uh, wine made in a traditional fashion uh, has amazing resilience, uh, as we've talked about, but. Um how about market resilience are we going to see traditional style barolo get really expensive sometimes i feel like there really only seems to be a handful of practitioners left um seems to be increasing interest i wonder if it's going to go the, the way of old champagne and sort of skyrocket in price and it's are, are certain producers already there or where's the where's the ceiling on that what do you think's going to happen with that category
1: um it's a great question, and, and definitely uh, you know something to be concerned about. I mean, we're, we are are already seeing you know even you know even just you know it doesn't have to be the tip, the top top producers you know some in the middle who uh, whose prices have gone up. You know, fifty to one hundred percent over the last last five years. Um, you know d- that demand does that. I mean, yeah, it oh yeah, definitely encourages. And you producers. can't
0: blame the producer you who you know sees things fly out the door and people are paying, willing to pay more for it. But when you look at okay, let's buy a traditional style, as we might talk about it, uh, Burgundy. Mm-hmm. There just seems to be so many more options yeah. uh, across Burgundy, although. Those are small producers who don't make a lot of wine. There seems to be a lot of practitioners who are still around using some of the old Mm -hmm. techniques or where, you know, the barrique doesn't seem uh, as uh, noticeable. Uh But then when it comes to traditional style Barolo, you know, once you – you can run out of producers before you run out of fingers to count them on, it seems like. Yeah. In terms of how many there really are, how many addresses you can go to. So are we going to see – now that – the kind of pendulum has swung towards interest in those producers mm-hmm. rather than kind of more modern style producers? Are we going to see modern style producers drawing back? Are we going to see producers who are in the middle skewing more traditional? And are we going to see a massive price range uh, hike in some of the traditional style rollers of, say, the next 10 years?
1: Um, I, I think we're going to see pretty much what what's happened in Burgundy, which is the, you know, the, the elite producers' wines are going to Become, you know, assuming that the market will bear it, will become more and more ex- expensive, more difficult to find. Um, you know, as you find you know, the part of the guessing game is, is, you know, is Asia going to start buying Barolo? Sure. You know, and once that happens, I mean, the production of of the best Barolos is really, really small. Mm-hmm. There just isn't that much to go around. Um, and, and suddenly you've got, you know, a, a new potential market that's willing to spend a lot of money. That's definitely going to push prices up. So that's a big question mark. Um, I mean, at this point, I think, I think, Asia's buying you know, buying Monfertino, uh Gaia, uh some Jacosa. Um, but other than that, I think, you know, the rest of Barolo and Barbaresco is, you know, is pretty much its, it's traditional markets. I think that 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 there's enough wine made in um it's a fairly large region mm-hmm. um that the prices are gonna remain f- Sane, you know, Mm -hmm. they may not—they're not going to be as cheap as they used to be, but I think they're still represent really good value. I mean you look at somebody like the Prototori and Barberesco, that's a good example both of so overdeliver well. yeah, for the price. Yeah, and you know prices wines prices that. have gone up but they're still they're still a steal, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could probably go up a bit more and still be, you know, be really good value. Wouldn't want to see that, but Do you but find
0: uh, it more difficult to find real superstar mm-hmm. producers in the Barbaresco zone than it is in Barolo? They'd, oh,
1: they'd, yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, you know, talk about history. I mean, there's, there's a really good historical explanation for that. And that is that, that, that Barolo, um, you know, was, it was a, a relatively rich, uh, sub uh, compared to Barbaresco. I Barbaresco see. was always poor. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so everybody, you know, the, the, the whole idea of these of domains, you know, making their own wine and selling it, uh, until, until Gaia, you know, came along, um, really wasn't anybody doing it. I mean, Jacosa, Jacosa did it, but he didn't own his own vineyards. Um, so basically all the growers belong to the prototory and, um, you know, and that goes back over, over 50 years. Um, you would have thought that, <clears throat> that given the way things have changed in the world, that a lot of the produtory members would have left and, be, and do their, make their own wine mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and sell them for twice as much money. Mm-hmm. But you know, extraordinarily, it hasn't happened. And the produtory members are still the produtory members. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there's so much loyalty to that organization that there hasn't been the prolif- pro- prolifer- pro- proliferation of, of small domains like there has been in, in Barolo.
0: Has there been historically some resistance in the American market to Barolo as a category? Sometimes I feel like people maybe don't uh, find the wines as appealing early in their career as other wines. And it it takes a while for people to come around to the idea of Barolo, especially traditional style Mm. Barolo. that's a little bit more tannic. Um, Do you think that's true or do you see it changing? And if it were true, if you were just getting started with Barolo, what... What might you be eating uh, that would
1: make that wine work a little bit better at the table? Mm. Um, first of all, I, I I think that the weather is helping a lot with... Um, you mean the weather in Barolo, weather, well, getting a little
0: warmer every year. Getting
1: warmer. Uh, the la- for the last decade, <clears throat> the wines have been noticeably uh, sweeter, rounder. When I say sweet, I'm not talking about about sugar. Sure. Just the, you know, this... Uh, not quite as bitter. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, you know, without, without bitterness, uh, without high acidity, lower acidity, um, more generous flavors, a, a nicer palate feel because of the, because of the weather, even traditionally made, mm. uh, Barolo. And I think that's actually help, helping it, helping them a lot. And, and I think that gets, that gets, gets balanced by, you know the the incredible nuance that traditional barolo has that in my opinion modern barolo doesn't have mm-hmm. I, mean, I think what happens with modern barolo is you you put the you first of all i mean all the wine making is designed to to put sort of a glossy sheen over it um, to give it this you know a, a, this a a layer of of of, of, of Flavor of wood um, to make it sweeter, to make it darker, um, to put some spicy uh, oak, oak smells into the bouquet. All these things, which, you know, make it a little bit more like other wines. It makes it easier for an average wine drinker to enjoy it. However, it robs the wine of what makes Barolo special and what makes the Nebbiolo grape special. So, I think once you have, you know, the, the, the weather's great because it gives people an opportunity to drink, you know, r- young, affordable Barolo. Uh, I mean, there, there's still a lot of, I mean, there's you can buy Barolos for, you know, for $30, 30 to $40. They're, sure. you know, they're knockouts. Absolutely mm-hmm. delicious. Um, you know, and so you get people to try them and, find, wow, this really is special. This mm-hmm. doesn't taste or smell anything like what I'm used to. Um, that gets them in the door and the real make, makes them realize that, you know, maybe there's something missing with these, you know, with these other wines. And so I think it's – I actually think it's a – Things are going in the right direction, um, and I believe that traditional Barolo and Barbaresco just has an incredible future. And I, I, you mentioned before, are some of the more modern producers going to become more traditional? We've seen it already. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to continue. I think you know, it, you know, it can't be lost on young winemakers in, in, in the Longay looking around. In seeing that the most expensive wine is not from Altari, it's not from Sandroni, it's not from Clerico, it's from Giacomo Um And, uh, you know, it can't be lost on them. And, you know, hopefully they will also have an open palate as well and realize that there really is something special about the traditionally made wines of that region.
0: What were some of the wines – we've talked about some of the wines that really inspire you from that region now. What were some of the wines that got you into the Piemonte in the first place? What were some of the producers that maybe we don't see so much of anymore that really caught your attention yeah. originally?
1: Um, well, I fell in love with Barolo. It was all part of this this book that I was writing in the 80s, which, by the way, I never finished. <laughs> yeah, I was
0: wondering, where yeah. uh, you know, what is the title of that book? Have you it, thought about ever writing the book? I, I
1: would love to do it. Um, actually got a lot of stuff written. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, maybe when I, if, when I retire, I'll, I'll have time to.
0: So not time anytime soon, unfortunately. Not anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but I, I was inspired then. I mean, I, you know, I visited, you know, this is, 25 years ago and, you know, had these wonderful visits with, you know, Bruno Jacosa in his prime and, sure. and, uh, and Bartolo Mascarello and, a great visit with a very young Mauro Mascarello sitting in his kitchen and learning the, the whole history of his winemaking, which is a wonderful story because he you know he had to battle his father, father to become a little bit more modern to do single vineyard barolas sure. and then once he got his foot in the door and was doing you know was experimenting actually thought about becoming a modernist and yeah. by the 1978 vintage his his macerations were down to i think it was like six days wow. uh from you know uh 30, a month yeah, yeah probably about 30 days uh you know under his father um you know and it's it's that was you know, it. Was a wonderful experience for me. So I, I fell in love with, uh, you know, with Barolo. Of course, I, I, the I corollary
0: doing- to that story is that he kind of rejected that. That philosophy oh, absolutely. kind of yeah, went back after the experiments, so I guess, just
1: a note. Yeah, I mean, by the early 80s, by the 82 vintage, he was, you know, he was as classic as just about anybody. Um And, uh, you know, and today is one of the, you know, great traditionalists. You know, I had the privilege of, you know, in 1980, probably 88, of sitting in his kitchen and learning this history. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have known it. Yeah. But,
0: uh, well, he told me that he he... He learned through you why his 70 was similar to the Cata Mauricio later. Yeah. Uh, and that was because that his dad didn't want him to make Montpravato as a single vineyard wine and had told him to use the the vines the Miche vines at the top of the hill that no one cared about yep. and that were not he didn't think were good for wine uh, to make the first Montpravato in 70 and then you did a vertical with him and you said why is this 70 so different than all the other Montpravatos until you get to Cata Mauricio, which he started much later uh, which was a separate bottling of exactly those right. those wines that he makes into a special reserva and and he, he he remembered that he'd had this big fight with his dad, and that his dad had forbidden him to use the rest of the grapes, and so he had been stuck with those vines, which now are considered some of the best vine material in the whole area. Yeah. But at the time, uh, were considered kind of like a, a nuisance, and and that that was his first vintage, uh, on his own.
1: Yeah, I mean the real the real measure of of that selection that he made in 1970 to 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 make the first Montbravato, to prove to his father that you could have a great single vineyard Barolo because his father was a, you know, traditional Barolo was never single vineyard. It was always a blend. It, sure. was, it was something that was part of the, of the philosophy of winemaking. He had to convince his father with that first vintage of Montprovato, you know, Fruit only from that vineyard that it, that it was capable of producing something spectacular, and so you know he he used the best fruit, and the best fruit was from this this particular uh, clone uh, or sub variety, um, uh, miquette. and um, and so as you said, I mean that then you know thirty years later, um, well actually. Uh, it was about twenty five, twenty three years later, led to uh, the creation of C- Ca Mauricio, where he, um, you know, he used only again he he, he replanted by S- Slexio Massal those those Miquette vines and
0: uh, which we should no, is one of the most expensive Barolo that you could find now. It, is, it wasn't yeah. on release, but it's you know quite well regarded these yeah, days.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: um, but, there was yeah. another producer that had a big effect on you, i think uh was volana sort of someone that oh, you yeah. have been
1: yeah. interested in yeah a friend of mine uh in the late sixties uh was buying volana in New York a lot um and he was the one who inter- introduced me to it um you know this was probably a, you know, about twenty five years ago, and I just fell in love with the wines and uh i don't know if you, i don't know if you know the story that uh of me going to to, to visit Mr. what happened Valana? when you uh
0: when you made that visit
1: well uh um volana had been had been dead for uh you know i don't know probably twenty years but his son in law was an Englishman who was married to his daughter um was you know was running the estate and so i had an appointment to go see him and this is i don't know about uh, Ten or fifteen years ago uh had a, had an appointment to see him, but when I got to the hotel um there was this, an urgent message for me that that mis- it said Mr. volana, even though his name wasn't volana that Mr. volana had died the day before he had had a heart attack um and so i never i never visited um, however i'm really happy to say that that um, his the Englishman's daughter uh, contacted us uh, a couple of months ago, and we are going to start representing Volan. In, oh,
0: I in, didn't know in, in that. Cali- yeah, no, it's... Oh, in California. In California. Yeah, because yeah. of course in New York, it's brought in by Skernik.
1: Yeah, 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 so we're going to be represented in California. So it's, you know, it, it it's it's all coming it's, full, it's full, circle. full circle. I
0: recently visited, it was kind of a stunning, stunning visit. Um, yeah, I insane, still haven't been there. Uh, well, I'll show you some pictures sometimes. It, it's interesting, because it's sort of, you know, not on the well-trodden trail it's you know it's a different area and i think that they're it's kind of like as you say they're still uh rolling out the red carpet because they just don't get that many visitors no yeah and so you know you you sit with them and they open up the 55 and you you know have it with them and you can really see the chain of history in that winery it, yeah. it, it's also quite large um yeah it's like the, physical space
1: and the wine the wines uh, today's even then and, and today uh as well and the wines are very reasonably priced yeah very much it's so yeah. they're a great deal and um you know they they also have a Gatanara, uh which is actually i guess i think that's their best cuve right now
0: right now yeah uh, i visited it that site it's really beautiful
1: <clears throat> it, yeah.
0: yeah and some old vines because uh, yeah. uh, that's part of the some of the issue uh with some of the other areas like boca where the the vines aren't there right mm-hmm. now they're yep. replanting that yep. kind of thing, yep. but they also buy in fruit It's an interesting time, like he said with uh, the collapse of Desalani and uh-huh. Farah, that uh, basically you know you can't give far away like in terms of the small growers huh. they're they're begging for someone to take the grapes wow. um, because the major buyers no longer in the market so um you know this is a, a time for a future manny should, burke or maybe buy, the should, manny burke to should, go in there and, and buy I mean. a lot of Farah. um which of course is a nebula wine that yeah. doesn't have huge traction in the market yeah. but is traditional yeah. no, i used to know, love desolate and i actually
1: yeah. didn't know that they they were out of business
0: yeah there was a there was a problem with um some some mislabeled bottles in the mm-hmm. european market that became a sort of a, a problem for them yeah and so that that buyer is not there and there's all these small growers mm-hmm. who have nowhere to go yeah basically and it's that kind of feast or famine model that we see sometimes in the traditional style area it's kind of like what happened with madeira at one time mm-hmm. and yeah you know th- there's just no um there's no one buying the grapes yeah and and people willing to give you the grapes for free if you're willing to go pick them and that kind of things mm-hmm. things um it's you know it's another time where you know, we think of these areas in general, oh, the Piemonte is quite successful, but, you know, there are these pockets where the success hasn't hit everyone. Yeah. And where there really are, you know, wines that kind of lay undiscovered or, or hidden for a time until mm-hmm. someone comes back and, and rediscover them, as, as you have
1: many times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, getting back to your question about the, you know, what, what's inspired me about traditional Barolo. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the biggest inspiration has been tasting, mm-hmm. um, which is you know
0: not not a bad reason
1: to no, be involved in yeah. with wine. I mean, basically, it's the wine itself. I, I've always loved I've always loved the stuff. I, I was like everybody else in the sense that I, I bought in a little bit too much um, in, in, into the the rhetoric that that. Traditional Barolo was, you know, you know there were some really good, really great producers like Interno and Mascarello, but a lot of it was, you know, the wines were dirty and they were flawed mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know. Which was definitely something
0: stuff. you heard very recently,
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and that was really, that was the big argument behind the modernist movement. We, you know, we've got great potential here, but we've got to make, you know, we've got to make wines that, you know, that that befit clean the, and, yeah you know. and befit the quality of, of the fruit and so you know and it's and they you know and so that was the justification for it. Um you know come to find out having tasted I mean literally hundreds of old Barolos and barbarescos from from producers, you know, uh great and small That there's a lot of great wine out there that was made in the, in the forties, fifties, sixties and seventies. And the wines are surprisingly consistent and they, and they age well. They've held, if they've been well cellared, uh, they're amazingly consistent, which is, which is the reason I've been able to do so many tastings over the years, um, less in New York than in San Francisco of, you know, all these producers that, that you know aren't that famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a producer like Franco Fiorina that I that right. I hadn't heard of probably five years ago. Um, you know, and I've now had a whole bunch of different vintages, and the wines are just absolutely they're they're beautiful. Or Giovannini Moresco in in Bar Sure, Maresco which was, you were
0: nice enough to share with me one time.
1: Yeah, those are you know they're amazing wines. I mean, they're just you know Scarpa, which is now
0: not there. It's the Cedar Moresco from, from from Gaia. Gaia. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Um, so I mean, you know. The, the my biggest inspiration is 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 opening my mind to you know to try bottles um and you know
0: not to, just take the received wisdom of the the chattering but exactly. to go find out for yourself
1: exactly and so that's you know that's actually been part of what we've been trying to do over the last few years is you know is to convince convince the world that you know there were a lot of good producers in in the region and uh you know and just Open your minds. I mean, at the prices that those wines sell for, you can afford to. I mean, even Mm -hmm. if it's not, even if it's only a a B plus wine, you know, you know, for, for.
0: With the age involved for maturity. uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, for, you know, $75 for a, you know, a 30 year old wine or $100 for a 40 year old wine, it's still, you know, it's still a pretty amazing wine experience. Another region that I feel exactly the same way about, which I think is, is probably about 20 years behind uh Piedmont mm-hmm. is is Rioja. I see. Where um, again same deal, you know, a lot of a ch- lot of buzz that, you know, there were only a few good producers. I mean, Lopez de Redia, obviously, sure. obviously Cune, yeah. Marqués de Murrieta. Uh, Marques de Rescal, I mean Mm -hmm. the famous producers you know know, more recognizable names acknowledged that their traditional wines were always good. But what about all the others? And um you know, and why have why have so many producers in Rioja modernized their methods to taste more like other regions? You know, the answer is because the world doesn't that the world doesn't believe in their wines and their history makes them not believe in their wines right. and their history. And so they feel compelled that they need to make their wines be more like wines from the rest of the world. And um, so, you know, my next, my, my next um, uh, frontier uh, and one that I think is going to be, you know, it's going to be, I, I think, I think it's going to see a lot of activity, a lot of interest over the next, um, you know, decade will be Rioja because I think that the, the wines, the surviving old wines in that region, um, the prices of wines, not only old wines but young wines, are so are so low for mm-hmm. the quality that they have to be rediscovered. And uh, you know, and I think it's you know it's going to it's going to join the list of other traditional wines that people are starting to appreciate. Sometimes
0: what I find is that when there's no current brand name, <clears throat> like for example with uh, Moresco that yeah. we mentioned, where the winery no longer exists. Uh, when there's when there's no current brand name holding the flag high, mm-hmm. the older vintages are really undervalued because people uh, in the market are just not familiar with those old names. Yeah. And they're somewhat hard to come across. Even if they were quite prestigious 40 years ago, it's very hard to know that without really doing some, some book research and um, finding out because the story has kind of been broken. And because it's not... Um, there's no new release to kind of hype the market. There's no uh, value placed on the old wines, which can be spectacular. Do you find that also the case with smaller producers in other areas?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, that's bad is where the producer doesn't exist, doesn't exist anymore. What's worse is that the producer has become really modern. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, it's 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 doubly tough. Right. You know, I mean, it's one thing to Because people are like,
0: oh, no, I'm not into that. You know, and you're I mean, like, no, really, back then it was different.
1: Yeah, I mean, we just did a 78- uh, tasting and you know Chireto uh, showed really well, mm-hmm. and you know, and it surprised a lot of people because you know Chireto you know very modern now, and it may not be to their. These are people who like traditional wine. What it wouldn't the modern ch- later Chireto Chireto wines are not are not so exciting to them, and they were just shocked at how good the you know the '78 is. Um, I mean, you see that you see that a lot, and I think it's a big problem in Rioja where. You've got so many producers who, um, you know, who are just not seen as a, tra- as a traditionalist convincing people. Yeah. But the wines really are good. I mean, right. Lopez de Redia is the notable exception to that. I mean, they have, they have, you know, been true to their, their values. They make, made great traditional wines in the past. They do it today. Everybody gets it. And as a result, you know, Lopez de Redia is the, you know, they're, the, they are the star, mm-hmm. right? right now right and the
0: prices have gone up accordingly i think i mean from when i first started selling them i mean i love the wines well the young
1: wines actually i think the prices are still really really good i mean the problem is the older wines there's been so much demand and they've sold a lot of their stocks and that's why why the prices have gone up but there are other producers whose older wines um you know are really good and i mean a, a producer that See, that doesn't get the attention that it deserves is bodegas riohanas mm-hmm. um their top wines I, I don't know the, it very yeah, well at all montorial and then Vina albina those are the two the two top wines and wines are just you know they're fantastic mm-hmm. but um they never get reviewed in the press in the US uh, they're, they're always been traditional you know so no worries there it's just that nobody's ever heard of them so mm-hmm. you know it's a matter of you know, again, getting people to, uh, you know, to open their minds and, and, uh, and really, you know, g- you know g- give, give wines a, an opportunity to, to, uh, to show themselves.
0: What are some of the overlooked vintages in some of these areas that people may not know? Like, for instance, with you, I've talked about 79s occasionally yeah. uh, being showstoppers, which isn't a vintage that a lot of people think in Barolo. Oh, 79, that's a big one. But, you know, are there tips that you might give to someone who's sort of prospecting?
1: Hmm. Um Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely there are vintages that will surprise you with how good the the wines can be. I mean, in Piedmont, uh, 67, 70, 74, 79 are surprisingly good. 86 is a, you know. Oh, that's is, really is a, you know, not well-known. Big, ti- big time vintage that, you know, that no, you know, very few people know about. Um, it, you know, but, you know, it, it it's going to be, it's going to vary from producer to producer and wine to wine to wine. Also, you have to be concerned about how the wines have been, have been cellared. But, um, you know, I think if you avoid the really bad years, you know, yeah. like 65, for example, in, in Piedmont, or, uh, you know, I guess 75 would be another one. Mm. Uh, you know, you probably are, we'd be pretty wise, but, but give, you know, usually, for the lesser vintages, less famous vintages, the prices are going to correspond to sure. you know to, to perceived quality. Yeah, and uh, more often than not, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I mean, I've had some good '77s in Burlow, which is you know yeah, not another. something
0: anybody talks about. No, 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 because no. it's my birth year, so I know <laughs> <that> for <laughs> a fact. <laughs> well, Manny, I want to thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and as always, every time I talk to you, I learn a ton. And I, I wish you the greatest of success uh, for what you're doing because what you care about, I deeply care about. And I love to see the conversation continue. Thank you. Oh, thank
1: you, Levy. It's been a pleasure.
0: All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan.